Hello and welcome to Season 3, Episode 5 of Logicast, the AWS News Podcast brought to you by Logicata. I'm Carl Robinson, CEO and co-founder of Logicata, and I'm joined, as always, by my colleague, lead cloud engineer, John Goodall. How are you doing today, John? Yeah, I'm okay. A bit stiff. Woke up with a stiff neck. I'm getting old. I think you were stiff last week. Have you not uh, managed to do any kind of limbering up stretching exercises in the in the time since we last spoke? Well, no, the last time was because I overdid it in the gym and I, I've corrected for that. And this morning is just because that cat there decided to sleep on my head. So, oh, and uh, you didn't suffocate. Well, not like on my face. Like, okay, right. Yeah. Okay. I don't think we should uh, go down this line of conversation any further. Uh, I think what we should really do uh, is introduce our guest for today. So, we're delighted to be joined by uh, fellow AWS community builder, Amelia Huff Ross. But, Amelia, I think you are a first for the podcast because I don't think we've had a community builder in the machine learning category before. So, welcome, Amelia. How are you doing today? Thank you so much, Carl. I am doing very well. Uh, thank you very much for letting me read your articles and join in on the podcast today. I do appreciate it. You're welcome. Tell us a bit about yourself. What do you do for a living apart from being a community builder in the machine learning category? Absolutely. So I get to work for one of the national laboratories. I am a senior cloud engineer. I support many researchers trying to leverage cloud computing for their research purposes. Uh, everything from um, large data analysis to uh, Internet of Things, uh, collecting data from sensors out in the field. So it's a lot of fun and lets me see a lot of uh, it really interesting research projects. Nice. And can you tell us about any of those research projects or would you then have to kill us if you did? <laughs> That's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> uh, some of them are out in the public domain. Uh, there's some really interesting ones about satellite imagery for fire detection uh, to kind of help forewarn uh locations and if a fire is getting too close to certain infrastructure that's uh, important to know about those things and then also guide the folks trying to fight those fires um so that's a very interesting research effort uh that the lab's working on and, and there are a couple others but nice those ones so I probably can't mention <laughs> we'll talk about those off air Exactly, <laughs> and then you then you can kill me if you wish. Uh, right. But uh, no tech for good. It's great to hear somebody is doing something with tech for good. Um, yeah. So anyway, um, if you are a regular listener to the podcast, you will know that every week uh, I collate a list of AWS news, which I share via my weekly AWS News Roundup newsletter. And then John and I pick a subset of the articles from the newsletter that we'd like to talk in a little bit more detail about with our guests. So we have such a set of articles for this week's episode, and. And the first article this week is from the AWS Compute blog, and it's actually about LightSail, which is something we've not spoken about on the podcast before. LightSail, of course, being AWS's VPS offering. Um, so uh, kind of a little bit separate to the rest of AWS, and it has its own console and that kind of thing, but it's still very much an AWS product. Um, and this article is talking about uh, the announcement of some new IPv6 instance bundles and some other pricing updates uh, on Amazon LightSail. So, John, what can you tell us about this one? I mean, you've kind of covered it, to be honest. That was the whole article. It, it, it's, <laughs> it wasn't um... the whole article. I didn't say where the price increases were coming from. So if you'd like to go there, just get a little tip <laughs> of where to go next. So. <laughs> yeah, so for standard stuff for the pod uh, definition, LightSail is, as you, as you quite rightly say, Amazon's VPS offering, because um, when you provision servers through EC2 and the more, quote, traditional means you provision the server and the disk and the network and you kind of pay for all of those things separately they'll come on the same bill but they're kind of billed individually to each other 
Lightsail bundles all of that up so that you get server plus disk plus IP network, yada, 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 kind of all in one nice, neat package, which is, I don't know, it's a thing people might want to use if, I know you want pricing predictability. It's pretty predictable anyway. If you don't want to go and hire an engineer just to spin up a few servers or something like that, it's kind of handy. It's a nice thing to have. And I think a couple of our customers make use of it, but it's not something that we deal with primarily because we're kind of lower down the tech stack. In terms of the change, <clears throat> excuse me, as we've spoken about, I think, ad nauseum on the pod at this point, and um, it's been in the news a lot in, I think, it's the end of this month. It's end of next month, end of next month. I think it's coming soon. AWS is going to start charging, I think it's half a penny per hour. It's about four bucks a month for every IPv4 public IP that you have associated with your account. And we've kind of said historically that, okay, this isn't really a lot of money. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It encourages people to use IPv6 and stop using a very limited pool of IPv4 and yada, 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 yada. But the complaint we've always had, I've always had, is that a very few number of things support IPv6 only as their operation. And a number of things require an IPv4 IP address to even operate. So it's a bit like, well, here's the stick and then we'll give you the carrot later. It just strikes me as a bit not normal for AWS. It feels like a cash grab. There we go. What this is doing is right in the nick of time, although LightSail is actually getting these changes a little bit later in terms of the pricing, but that's by the by. They are announcing IPv6 options for LightSail. Brilliant. We like this. The price is going up, I think, slightly because is it going up or not? It's I think IPv4 is going up and IPv6 is not. So it's like, it's kind of not a lot in it, but there's some pricing differences. But they're announcing bundles that will come with IPv6 only. So you then don't have to pay for IPv4 addresses. That's great. Makes it a bit cheaper overall if you don't need IPv4, which there's very few reasons I could think that you would actually need them beyond incredibly static, static IP addresses. Because I've seen dynamic... IPv4s hang around for a very long time and IPv6s because they're so big that they can change like the last octet or whatever it's called in IPv6 fairly regularly and that becomes quite annoying. Um, but realistically, this is just a, it should have had it, should have had it ages ago. It now does have it. Great, wonderful. You can avoid the extra $4 a month charge. But yeah, pretty dull, but pretty you know worth having if it's something that you use. Any thoughts on this one, Amelia? I guess light sales not particularly relevant in the world of machine learning. It's certainly not where you'd want to run those sorts of workloads, but uh, any, any thoughts on this? No, it was interesting, though, when the article came to light because my last job, people struggled a lot with AWS Cloud and getting started, and I was studying for my certification exams, and so I was very much on the, here's my EC2, here's my storage, here's what I'm doing. Uh, and so they brought in light sale and I was like, I'm so confused. Do you mean this is all automated, all of that? And you're, you're just playing around. So I can confirm that what the article says is that it is, you know, very much an easy way to get started on AWS. So. Absolutely. And is uh, John, do you know, is there a migration path from light sale to EC2? Not that um, I'm aware of. Yeah, no, I it's back it's... Up and, uh, take a snapshot and restore it. Isn't it? That's so. about the size of it. Yeah. It's, mm. it's, I don't recommend things like Lightsail and Beanstalk and those sorts of we'll do an awful lot of it for you type tools for exactly that reason. There's no easy way to go from this, oh, we're running in the cloud now, great, to, oh, that's actually not fit for purpose. 
we need something better. There's no kind of path. Right. It was very much a group at my prior employer who were trying to figure out how to migrate this and how to do things with it in the, you know, the next steps. And it was sort of like, well, you, you sort of went down a path. <laughs> You're committed to that path with this particular product and you would have to re-architect and kind of start over. So, Yeah, probably not a great place to start if you want to build a scalable web app. But if you've just right. got a static site that's not going to grow and you want something simple, then yeah. put it in S3. <laughs> well, yeah, there is that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. The, come on, then. Come up with another use case for LightSail. Give us a use I case can't. for LightSail. That's the problem. I can't. It's it's not, it's a bit duct tapey. It's not a good solution for anything, but it's an okay solution for a lot of things. Yeah, I mean, if you're only ever going to run one EC2 instance in AWS um, with a, a very small workload on it, then probably makes sense to run it in LightSail because then you haven't got the pain of going through building VPCs and, and so on and so forth, exactly. which isn't particularly yeah. painful. But, uh, you know, um, it's... Uh, I mean, it used uh, to be. It used to be. Uh, VPC okay. building used to suck. It's really easy now because there's a wizard and it does it for you. Or, you know, use Terraform like a normal person. You're my wizard, John. <laughs> I'm trying to grow the beard in. It's coming. Yeah, it's definitely looking a bit more wizardy as uh, as, as bit, the hair grows. A <laughs> bit more wizened. <laughs> that too. Anyway, on that note, let's uh, skip on to the second article for this week. And uh, this is another AWS blog post, but this one's on the AWS database blog. Um, and this is all about um, Amazon RDS multi-availability zone, um, talking about how um, multi-AZ uh, failover clusters actually work in AWS. So uh, if you are running a, uh, a database which requires high availability, uh, then obviously running it in multi multiple availability zones is a very important thing to do. So, uh, John, what can you tell us about this one? Well, this is, and for anyone that does read it, my apologies, this is very heavy. This is, this is you know, the last one was quite light. This one's very heavy. Um it's important to note that there's two different ways of doing multi-AZ with RDS, excluding Aurora as it currently stands. You can do multi-AZ instances or multi-AZ clusters. If you do it with the instance, which is the other type of this, you get an, you get a one backup copy in another AZ. Right? And to be honest, for a lot of people, that's good enough, and that was kind of the, the MO for a long time before these came along. So that's still in the wild. There's no reason to really upgrade from instances to clusters if don't have a specific use case for needing the clustering it's it's kind of neither here nor there in terms of this this is doing is this is kind of showing you how the clusters work compared with the multi-az instances and the clusters are giving you something that's kind of cool and that you've got two backups rather than one you know ha standby copies and it goes through kind of how it's doing the replication and the clustering and there's some right nerdery in there if you're really into it but it's I just think it's interesting that there's this kind of difference in that the old way of doing things still exists and you can still spin things up and the new way of doing things exists and you can spin those up and they're not forcing you to migrate from instances to clusters and they're just going through here's how we do all of this really cool stuff and you know write commits and how the speed increases and you should definitely use the clustering rather than the instances but there's no reason to force you to migrate it was just it felt very at odds with the previous article in terms of that's how AWS tends to operate and that we'll just bring this new thing along. It's better. We'll encourage you to use it, but we won't force you until 10 years down the line. We go, okay, we're retiring that. and now you have to get off. But 
just felt at odds with the previous MO, really. I thought I was ready to study for my solutions architect professional exam when I started reading it because I thought, oh, my SA Pro is expiring. This is probably what's going to be on the exam next, and I'm going to need to know the intricacies of how this all works. Um, I did think it was really interesting uh, that they highlighted the manual intervention by the operators. I, I think that gets glossed over a good bit when you're paying for a managed service. To be reminded that there are people on call probably managing these for when they do fail over and have problems. Um, so now instead of just two availability zones for the, the prior method, uh, now they've got three. And so that's probably an interesting setup. So. And of course, it's a new exam for the SA Pro. If uh, if you're going to renew, I just snuck in on the uh, the, the outgoing version when it retired back in November, I think. But uh, yeah, it would be a different exam to the one you took before, I guess. Um, if yeah. uh, you're you're up for renewal, because that would have been getting on for three years ago. So um, yeah, it's going to be sad. I'm, I'm starting over, basically. <laughs> have you booked the exam yet? Oh no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> got to get it in the diary otherwise i know, you know you're right otherwise yeah, it'll just yeah, keep yeah. moving along yeah you can defer it twice i know that because i did you did <laughs> so uh, you can defer it twice without losing your fee or your voucher or however you're uh, you're funding the exam um, yeah. but uh, yeah the only reason you actually took it was because you'd run out of deferrals and your voucher for doing it for free would have expired it wasn't the only reason I took it, but it was a uh, main driving force for the, the, the point in time that I did actually take it. Yes. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, let's move on to our third article for this week. And we talk about the subject that we talk about regularly on the podcast, and that is cost optimization. Um, but this one uh, is, uh, is all about cost optimization at scale. Part one. I haven't seen part two. Um, so I don't know what's in part two, but uh, in part one, um, uh, the, author is talking about shutting things off um so uh a good idea john to just turn things off when you're not around <laughs> i mean it's a bit of a hard sell for production or you know high performance workloads that cannot tolerate being interrupted it's a bit of a hard sell for that but for non-prod workloads yes just turn uh, i can't swear on this or we'll get banned from youtube turn that stuff off just turn it off um, it does. The article does go on to start talking about Kubernetes, and like you can't get away from the damn thing, can you? It's you go to a meetup, you read a blog post. It's oh, we're going to talk about Kubernetes. Great, I don't care. Like, whatever. Um, hmm. It's quite hard to turn EKS off because there's still the control plane. You're still paying for that per hour. I forget what the charge is these days. I think it might be ten p, which is not vast amounts of money, but you know, when you're only using it eight by five rather than 24 seven that's money you're spending that you don't necessarily want to um so that's that's a thing um so you want to support resources other than ec2 okay other things do support being turned off but you can't turn off an ebs volume it's just there you're just going to pay for it so it's not quite as simple as just turning that stuff off i mean that's a big part of it honestly because you can you can drop your hourly commit the hourly spend in non-prod accounts from 720 hours to like 400 or something so it's it's a big thing to do it's definitely a big thing to do but there's definitely other stuff like um az independence because you've got to worry about inter az transfer fees and that kind of thing or cross-region transfer fees so there's definitely more to it than just, well, turn it off. Maybe they'll talk about that in part two. Never know. 
what, what did you think about the uh, means of turning things off? Because obviously there's uh, lots of different ways you can turn things off. And of course, you do need to be able to turn them back on again, assuming you're going to want to use them again. Um, but uh, what did you think of the, the the build that was outlined in this particular article? Oh, which one did they use? Because there's like three different ways of doing it, isn't there? I I forget which one they used. strategies, I think, right? Um, they were highlighting tagging. And I know just from our work efforts, many things in the national lab space can't really just be turned off. It's it's not up to us to turn that stuff off. It's owned by the researchers. And so either they're well-educated on their cost um, run and trying to make sure that they're reducing costs. Many people I know are. Um, many people have things that get away from them. And so it would be great if we did have an auto shut off for them, but not knowing which workloads we can and can't turn off. And, and then tagging strategies, I think, are really... Um, you know, you got to think those out, right? I mean, depending on what tagging strategy you select, if you've got new workloads coming into play and they don't know what to tag it as, or if you have auto, I mean, maybe if it's auto tagged, then you've got a chance, but. Yeah, tagging is something we deal with with our customers generally, and auto shutdowns is a thing we deal with as well. Not not specifically for EKS, because we see an EKS, or I see an EKS when I go, what are you doing that for? Don't do that. Um Maybe that's just my biases. Um, but there's a few different ways of doing it. <clears throat> but the tagging side of things, what we tend to do is we'll enforce for new using something like a service control policy. Um, but the only things we, we can reliably enforce is what environment is it and um, something to drive the backup schemes because we have backup plans and things in place. And that's about it. How do you do this? Here's a document. It won't work unless you follow unless you do as you're told. Follow these rules and it'll work. And for anything that doesn't already follow those rules, here's a config rule and it'll tell us about it. Auto tagging is fun because I've built three different auto taggers and broken two of them in the process. Because <laughs> it's we want to be able to do this. Okay. It might be temporary though, so we don't want like 24 hours. Okay. <laughs> so auto tagging is always good fun. And as you say, it's it's one of the better ways of solving that because something comes up if you haven't supplied a set of tags already we're going to assume it's a temporary environment and we'll just turn everything off and okay you probably annoy a bunch of people if they spun it up for high performance stuff and it can't tolerate being turned off but then you should have tagged it this you know this is documented or it should be what was quite amusing there when you said something comes up your cat stood up rotated 360 degrees and sat down again so uh, perfect timing absolutely perfect timing i think that spot in the bed got warm and she's moved yeah <laughs> um anything to add on that that one amelia um well i was i'm less familiar with control plane but they did they did bring that up and just sort of how they were communicating to with their tagging strategy to be able to issue commands um and so i think that's something that i might need to actually start looking into a bit more um and I actually, I think I actually sent this to one of my fellow engineers at the lab because it had come up last year as a strategy for how we might help support some of the automation that exists for our, our accounts. Um, so it's definitely worth it's definitely worth knowing that AWS have provided at least two different ways of three different ways of um, skinning this particular cat. I'm not going to skin her. Certainly not on camera. <laughs> not, uh, not that cat. Yeah. <laughs> 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 really grim expression that but no there's aws have provided at least three ways of solving this problem but that only goes so far because they've got the resource scheduler which is part of systems manager they have the ec2 instance scheduler which is a, a deployable product uh, solution that they've created which does ec2 and rds and aurora even though it's the ec2 instance scheduler 
Okay. Um, and then there's a third one that I forget the name of that can handle EC2 and RDS, but the scheduling is is less intelligent than the instant scheduler because the instant scheduler can do on and off several times a day, different days of the week, different schedules, and so on and so on. Um, and that one does work cross-account as well, so you can deploy it kind of pretty centrally. And you can do things like stack sets, and they talk about account factory for Terraform, so you can do it with your baselining and, and all that stuff. So definitely worth saying that there's a lot of things out there that already exist in this space, and you don't really need to reinvent the wheel. You just need to pick the right wheel. Cool. Okay. On that note, let's skip along to the next article for this week and uh, into John's comfort zone of serverless. <laughs> Uh, so, and this is an article on Tech Target uh, entitled "Decode Serverless Pricing in AWS to Avoid High Costs." So we're kind of sticking uh, with the cost optimization theme, uh, but here uh, relating specifically to serverless technologies. So, John, what are the specific issues we need to be cognizant of uh, in the serverless world for cost optimization? That your logs cost more than your execution. That that's that's number one realistically i have never ever ever seen a serverless deployment that cost more than its logging solution did ever and i've seen a lot of them um so that's 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 the big one is lambda will by default log out the cloudwatch logs you can't stop it from doing this with the exception of turning off its permissions and that really feels dirty to me so you can't stop it from logging things out to um, cloudwatch logs and then you're paying ingress fees and you're paying storage fees and kind of all the rest of it so turn your logging down that's that's number one which is not quite turn it off but it's do less if you don't need it to spit out that log message at every level don't and this is just good programming practice as well is have your different info versus error versus debug versus whatever and only use the right thing at the right level you don't need full logging debug logging in production you just you don't you need your error log so you can see what's gone wrong but that's about it so that's that's the first one the next one and it's it's a funny one this and, and the article kind of touches on it it's it's if you know what your capacity needs are going to be, then you can provision that, and it's a little bit cheaper potentially to provision, depending on kind of the technology. DynamoDB is the right example for that one, because provision concurrency for Dynamo is cheaper than pay-as-you-go, but you pay every hour, regardless of whether you've used it. Pay-as-you-go, you only pay when you use it, but each compute unit, capacity unit, is... Um, slightly more expensive so it's do you know your workload patterns and if you do know your workload patterns are they consistently high and if they are consistently high probably don't use serverless because it might not be the right thing i like serverless i'm serverless community builder i go on about serverless all the time um it's very much my bag but it's not always the right tool as the big um trying to think of the right word as, as all that noise a little while ago about the prime video team with their stream quality analysis going away from serverless and back to ec2 uh, serverless is dead no they moved the boundaries of one microservice it's still microservices lots of things are still serverless in that whole setup it's just it wasn't the appropriate thing for that workload and that's that's pretty key as well as it's not always appropriate because it could be cheaper to go somewhere else but if you don't know how much your workloads are going to run, then it's quite hard to provision concurrency against it. So use pay-as-you-go and take the extra unit cost on the chin. And what you're doing is you're playing unit cost against unknowns because you don't know how much it's going to run. So you have to kind of take that on the chin. Um, and then the last one 
that I like to talk about. And I think it came up at our UG event that Matthias mentioned. It's the it's the noisy neighbor effect. It's you've run out of concurrency, so it's going to sit there and it's going to start falling over, and you're still paying loads of money for the other thing. So you need to be cognizant of that as well. Um, and that's not really cost optimization, but if you're paying for things to sit there and then fail to run, you're going to have invocation costs that are going to f- cost you a load of money and do nothing. So that's worth pay- taking account of as well. Thoughts on this one, Amelia? John did such a great job. I mean, <laughs> yeah. so renewal in the bag. That's the renewal. <laughs> I was like, John's got this one covered. I, yeah, I just went back to the you know, Amazon Prime video article, just like John did, and was highlighting the fact that it was just their monitoring service that they moved over, right? So it was not at all that this was the end of uh, Lambda and serverless architectures. Um, but exactly John's point that the logging was probably costing them way more than actually the running of the functions. So specifically um, in that case, it was the they were using step functions um, yes. and they were paying per transition because they were using standard rather than express, which is stupid. And right. it was just pegged constantly. Yes. So they're paying loads of money for transitions and it was just like, eh. Yeah, American football, you know, got a love the ESPN contract they had that was <laughs> <laughs> forcing this issue. Well, I think Prime Video is a loss leader for Amazon. Oh, yeah. Well, Don, I have a wonderful colleague that I'll have to introduce you to um, who's a big fan of Lambda and serverless and reducing costs. (laughs) Let's get them on the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) You can have a cost off. Yeah. That sounds so wrong. Yeah, it doesn't sound great, does it? Uh, I'm not going to put that in the title. Um, but, uh, <laughs> okay, on that note, let's uh, skip please, on to the please. final article of this week. And uh, this one is an article on the Harvard Business Review entitled Free Up Your Human Talent with Hyper Automation on AWS. And it is, of course, a sponsored post by AWS. Um, so, uh, I have to admit the term hyper automation was a new one on me. Um, and uh, I'm wondering if it's a term that is being coined by AWS uh, to suit uh, some of the services that they are uh, trying to, to to push at the moment. But uh, Amelia, I'm going to come to you first on this one. What, what are your thoughts on hyper automation? Is this uh, something that exists in, in your world or is it, was it new to you too? Um, the term was definitely new. The, the description of how it, uh, how are they defining it as something that saves you uh, between, I think, 60 and so I forget the exact percentages, but it was a significant percentage of workforce labor as well as cost for that workforce. Um, and there are many things that have you know been automated in some way, shape or form. I think back to my days with uh, manufacturing companies um, where document imaging, you know, that was all sort of read automatically by a computer so that somebody didn't have to do that anymore. Um, and so I kind of see this as just the the next iteration of that, right? But at the same time, it's the next iteration of that kind of like, um, oh, what's helping people write code these days? Um, Copilot code and, and things like that, where it's almost like code language. language. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can't talk whisper. about Microsoft-owned things. It's not like that. <laughs> yes. And, and AWS. Chat GPT. And yeah. Chat GPT and all of those wonderful things helping us out. Um, 
it's it's just fascinating because now you almost need to have a background in computer science to be able to interact with the machine, right? That's going to do all of this automation for you. That uh, sometimes it's you know easier to just yell over the you know screen to a person and be like, why are you doing it this way? So I think this is an interesting uh, space that the technology world seems to be getting into. This computer is going to solve all of your problems, and then it's epically going to fail, right? And people are going to be trying to piece through what failed, and they're going to be trying to understand how this workflow actually was working and what failed. And so I think it'll be interesting. Yeah, I think um, one of the things I kind of got from this article was using automation to do the automation. So using <laughs> using AI to actually drive the, the, the automation workflows. I don't know how good an idea that is. What, what do you think, John? I don't buy it. I don't. I'm, I, I picked this one just because I liked the word hyper automation because it sounded a bit Star Wars, but <laughs> it's the whole AI to build the automation. It, it, I don't really want to bring up the Horizon Post Office thing, but I'm going to because it's stuck in my head now. Um, up until reasonably recently, the UK had the concept that computer systems were legally deemed as working correctly until proven otherwise. And that's obviously not true. Anyone that knows anything about a computer goes, well, that's obviously not true. But it seems like we're getting back to the idea that we expect the AI to do it correctly and that we can give it to, as the this um, user profile that they've outlined here, a human employee who is business savvy but not a software savant. I hate that term so much. <laughs> I'm not a savant. I'm just not an idiot. I'm just... <laughs> Like, I'm an engineer. I'm not a savant. Like, so, no, I don't like that. Um, but this is Sally, this this business person that isn't an engineer, has to be able to interact with the AI in such a way that the AI is going to produce the result that she wants. And she's not going to, certainly in 2024, have the prompt engineering know-how to get it to spit that result out. Because, again, that's knowing how to Google and eighty percent of the population doesn't know how to Google, so I don't, I don't see this. Certainly not now. Give it another decade, and they still won't know how to Google. So, <laughs> valid point. What do you think they're trying to push here? What do you think? Because it's not, there's no product pitch. <laughs> well, Gen AI, no. of course, but uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I've been playing around with some generative AI uh, for. What I think is an interesting use case, which is multiple tickets in JIRA, right? Many, many service tickets, all kinds of stuff. And if I'm trying to service my customers and they have specific questions about AWS products and services, I want to pull those out of that you know, database of tickets and just kind of see what are the questions they've been asking? Can I make better FAQ documentation? Can I help them self-help um, self and, and find what they need without needing to put in a ticket? And I was messing around with AWS Comprehend and I didn't want to train my own model and the model that Comprehend gave me was not, not ideal. And so I tried Bedrock and it's uh, offering of the foundation models from other companies like Anthropic was, was helpful. You know, they were a bit more powerful and were doing a much better job with entity recognition to be able to, to know that if it said AWS and a product that those could be sort of interchanged. Um, and so it's just, it's an interesting space. And so trying to figure out the best use cases for it. Um, and really what it comes down to is prompt engineering, right? Because it's only going to give me out what's as good as I can define a question to ask. And I almost garbage feel like I now need out. another degree in how to do prompt engineering. 
<laughs> yeah, that's going to be the next round of courses. I'm sure we're going to be seeing uh, prompt engineering on Udemy, uh, only 19.99 uh, <laughs> on sale. Usual price, 199.99. Yeah, yeah. But what was the uh, what was the outcome there, Amelia? Did you uh, did you manage to leverage that data with the? Yeah, I'm still working on it. Um, trying to make sure that data is living in a in a safe place, and then trying to make sure that I can ask the right questions to get good information back. Uh, that's about where I'm at. So it's basically the prompt engineering stage. And then uh, can it can I make it into a, a widget that I can just have function outside of the AWS account uh, play space? So that's kind of the next step. Nice. Well, it's great to hear some real world examples of how people are leveraging generative AI. Um, but on that note, uh, we have come to the end of our time for this week. Um, so uh, thank you, as always, John, for your insights. And thank you for joining us as our guest this week, Amelia. It's been great to have uh, your insights uh, for this episode as well. Um, that was season three, episode five of Logicast. Uh, you can download us from wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to see what we look like, we're also on YouTube. So thanks for listening. Uh, we'll see you again next time. Cheers.